Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, a Raku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Sunil Badami talks with writer and director S. Shakti Dharan, whose play Counting and Cracking won the Victorian Prize for Literature in 2020. Hi, I'm Sunil Badami and welcome to the Byron Bay Writers Festival Conversations from Byron podcast series. And although we're not in Byron, I'd like to acknowledge the Araqual Bumbaman people of the Byron Shire as the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather. I pay respect to the elders past and present and ask that you share with us respect for country. In 2019, the sold-out, critically acclaimed Belvoir, Co-Curious and Sydney Festival production Counting and Cracking swept the prestigious Helpman Awards, our version of the Tonys, winning an incredible seven awards, including for Best Production, Best Direction and Best New Australian Work. A powerful, sweeping, moving and unforgettable three-hour saga of love and war, escape and home, It's the story of a young Australian, Sid, growing up in Sydney's western suburbs and growing apart from his fiercely formidable mother, Radha, as he falls in love with a young Aboriginal woman and comes to learn the secret history of Radha's motherland, Sri Lanka. Although my Indian parents didn't flee a devastating civil war, my mum's family, like Radha's, speak Tamil. And like Sid, also growing up in the same suburb featured on stage, I don't. But it was a revelation, not just to the many non-subcontinental audience members who saw it, but for people like me and mum who never see ourselves or our stories on screen or stage. Counting and Cracking was the debut play of the very talented S. Shakti Dharan, who many in the Western Sydney arts community know very well, along with his brilliant mother, the renowned classical Indian dancer Anandavali, who bears a striking resemblance to Radha, and to my mum too. <laughs> Shakti's latest play, The Jungle and the Sea, bringing together the Greek play Antigone and the Indian epic The Mahabharata, and featuring his wonderful mother, was due to premiere in July this year, but, well, due to COVID-19, which has also taken the festival online, it's been postponed indefinitely. So it's sad and serendipitous to meet with Shakti to talk about his work on what would have been The Jungle in the Sea's opening night. It's so great to have your company here today, Shakti. Now, I can't believe that today, of all days that we're talking in this conversation from Byron, would have been, in an alternate universe, the opening night of your and your mother's play, The Jungle and the Sea. Oh, wow. Would today have been opening night? <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> oh, well, somewhere in a parallel universe, Anil, that that is happening. 
How does it feel, the impact of COVID on your work and what you do? I have almost two opposite feelings, and it's really strange to live in that contradiction. The first feeling is a kind of existential worry. I mean, our business is mass gatherings, and it's not just a business. It's our calling and our why we wake up in the morning. And it is impossible to plan because a virus comes and goes. You know, I think that if we were dealing with something which said to the industry, this is severely going to impact you for a year. And at this point, it'll be okay. We are an underfunded, complex, resilient bunch, and we'd work that out. But that's not the deal. The deal is something is happening. We're going to try and manage it. We're not sure what's going to happen in the future. And we're an industry that um, plans things out one to three years in advance. And it's impossible to do that without some kind of surety about the future. So it's so central to who I am and how I figure out meaning in the world for people to gather and discuss things and to do that because of a shared story. And I find it really slow burn intense that we might not be able to do that properly for years. So that's one thing, which is not so good. <laughs> On the other side, you know, I've been reflecting. I think I, I started my own arts company. It's not my, it's not mine. I mean, I started an arts company um, that I've since stepped away from, and it's, and it's going really well, and that's Curious Works. I've been doing work in the arts since I left uni, and to have a career in the arts, you have to work really hard. Um, and I've really appreciated parts of this lockdown. I'm in a privileged position where I have a house that I can work from and and have a level of comfort in. But it's occurred to me that I've probably worked too hard for a lot of my life and that that's systemic to being in the arts um, and that uh, there is a value to having an opportunity to rethink the system by which we tell stories in this country and there's many things that we can improve. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting for me as a writer, you know, I, I realised when my kids were really little that all of a sudden that I was spending time isolated away yep. from them. Absolutely. To tell stories <laughs> about people who didn't exist for people who I may never meet, you know, while I was separated from the people I actually knew and loved. I mean, when you think about the way that we are changing how we tell stories or share stories, um, you know, Curious Works and Co-Curious, you talk about Co-Curious, your other company related to Curious Works as being stories from another Australia. What do you mean by that? So Curious Works and Co-Curious are both companies that have been set up to address a different way across the whole chain of the way we make and share stories in Australia. Curious Works is really at the grassroots and giving people who wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity a chance to step up. And Co-Curious is about a model whereby we say that why can't those stories be the, the primary stories of this country and have as much resources and spotlight as, I don't know, an opera from Germany. So the another Australia for me is the beating heart of this country. This is the provocation I'm putting forward. The beating heart of this country, the country that exists in the land and the country that exists in the people that have been on it and the exchange that exists between the first peoples who have been on it and those who've come since is not the same thing as the stories we tell in a majority of cases in this country's creative industries. And so that is the gap. And I think that beating heart of this country is the other Australia. 
It's a provocation. Is it a provocation? I mean, we could. S- there seems to be a whole conversation about diversity and inclusion, but it almost feels to me when I hear people talking about diversity and inclusion that it's actually not anyone like us who is having that conversation. It seems to be a conversation between the funding bodies and administrators, all of whom seem to not necessarily reflect that diversity or inclusion. So my take on that is that the work that needs to be done to address this gap that I've been talking about um, between the Australia of the streets and the Australia's on our stages and screens and in our books requires systemic change. And there is a difference between believing in the rhetoric of words like diversity and inclusion and being willing to step through the tasks it takes to achieve systemic change. There is a big difference between those two things. And I think that a majority of people want the former. They believe in the rhetoric. I genuinely do think that. But not as many people are willing to do the work that requires the systemic change. The power that is centered within our industries is centered in a small amount of postcodes and income ranges. And even if they believe in the rhetoric, the first step to address this gap, to be part of another Australia, to support another Australia, means being connected to it, means being out on the streets with it. And they cannot be if they are from a small amount of postcards, postcodes and income ranges. And so no matter how much you believe in the task, the first step needs to be about who are the people you need to bring in and put in positions of power who are connected to those places and how can you support them to work on that change over three, five, seven years. That's what needs to be done. In an ideal world, I would love it if we could um, ask almost every institution in Australia's creative industries to have a plan around that and act on that. And that's very difficult. Instead, what's happening is the very messy in between. And the whole thing is a mess because it's all happening at the same time and overlapping and in between each other. But that's, that's life, isn't it? That's, that's the process of change. <laughs> so why do you think there's been such a big kind of, you know, explosion of discussion around inclusion and diversity lately? Was it just George Floyd? I mean, brutality and racism have been going on for years. Why now, do you think? That's a really interesting question. I mean, we know that there have been at least Makassan, Indonesians, coming here probably thousands of years ago. We know that Chinese people came here in the 18th century. We know that there were a range of cultural backgrounds on the First Fleet. We know that there was a moment around multiculturalism in the 80s. Australia has an ancient, modern and contemporary multicultural history. And it has always had moments where the zeitgeist has come together and we felt like there would be change of, on the systemic level that I've been talking about. And it hasn't happened. And I think we're in another one now. It's a combination of there being historical events that shine a light on it and a huge desire for years and years for people to want this to happen, bubbling over. And it's taken on a new tone now with social media. So I think that's all reasons for it. I think the other reason is that there's a kind of ridiculousness to the current situation continuing without it diversifying because it seems very clear to everyone what Australia looks like now (laughs) and is. 
you can't really avoid it if you get a coffee somewhere um, and just walk down the street. And uh, the pretense that, that the Australia in our stages and screens doesn't look like that starts to fall apart, I think. The, the door has been opened and I don't think anyone is willing to let it be closed again. Now, speaking of breaking down the doors and becoming a part of the institution, your last play, Counting and Cracking, which I and my mum loved and everybody I know who saw it loved, you know, cleaned up at the Helpman Awards in 2019, won seven awards. You won another slew of awards. It was a sellout season for the Sydney Festival and for Belfast Theatre. But going back to what you were saying about diversity being limited to certain demographics, postcodes, or, you know, I guess income levels. Power. I was saying power. Power, yeah. <laughs> power was Sorry, limited. power. I meant power. But what I mean is, is you know, how can theatre get out? You know, given that often theatre productions like Canning Cracking, which was so epic, are often so, you know, expensive to stage and expensive for the tickets, you know, to buy them. Well, Canning Cracking, I mean, there's two answers to that. So the first is that it was a work which, on every level, artistic, producing, business, audience, we wanted it to be something that uh, opened its heart to many different parts of Australia. And so what we did is we allowed it to have entry points for different people. So I worked with elements of the Sri Lankan Australian community for about 10 years before that show got up. And they were invited into the process throughout and I made sure that they were able to see the work um, regardless of their income levels. Then there is the no reason that people who can't afford to pay more <laughs> shouldn't pay more. <laughs> um, and so you have to look at ways that the community can attend, people from less privileged backgrounds can attend, but you also have those who have the resources to make that thing happen also attend. There were things I didn't get right. I didn't realize it would have the success it did. And also my own community, a lot of them don't go to the theater or see how it's relevant. Satellite TV from South Asia is more relevant to them than the Australian TV or theater. So I tried my hardest to say this was a show they should come to. They were still skeptical. And then after previews and opening night, enough people from the Sri Lankan community came to it and it, and it just spread like wildfire, you know, word about the show. And suddenly hundreds of Sri Lankans wanted to come see it, but it had sold out by then. <laughs> um, so that was weird. And what I've learned from that and what we would have done with The Jungle and the Sea is that I talked to Belver about making sure that there is space throughout the season for community to attend the show and keeping that space each night in the audience. And that's, you know, what I want to improve with the next one. So like me, you know, you kind of, as Salman Rushdie would say, straddle two stools, you know, between your parentage, parents' heritage and your, I guess, Australian identity. Um, who are you telling your stories for? Um, are you telling them for wider Australia? Are you telling for the community? Are you telling them for yourself or your family? I come from a community arts background. Community arts was how I discovered what my place in Australia could be. And I don't mean that just as an artist. I mean that as how I feel like I belong here. And we probably don't have time to get into what that is. But if you're listening and you're interested, please Google it and Google Community Arts and Cultural Development. It is an arts practice which has its own form and process to it. Um, but the reason I raise it is to say that it's a process which answers all those questions for me, Sunil. 
And so each show um, or project that I start with doesn't start with the art form or the script. It starts with which community am I working with and what is the relationship of storytelling to that community in terms of power it can have and what it wants to do. And that decides all the other answers for me. So I do do work sometimes, which is just for the community. I do do works which are um, not for that community because the community wants to say something about itself to a wider audience. And counting cracking, the, the, the process of working with community actually changed the audience relationship. So when I first started writing it, I, I was writing it for myself because growing up with my mother, she had never talked about Sri Lanka or why we left. And I wanted to find out more about who, what our roots were in order for me to be able to move forward. And it was a very personal, small thing. And I didn't know it was going to be a theater show even at that point. But then I talked to dozens and that expanded over the years into, you know, close to a hundred or so Sri Lankans here and around the world. And what that did to me was I, I learned about the modern history of a nation that hadn't been told in our history books, hadn't been told in the media. And it was a quiet history, which I felt deserved a spotlight, which had the ability to help my community reconcile and to heal. And it did that to my mother. I sent her the first draft. She read it alone and she changed from telling me it was a very stupid idea that I should never embark upon to actually being involved in the development of the project. And then the things she started opening up about the first time she talked to me about Sri Lanka ended up in future drafts of the play. And then though, you know, essentially what happened in Sri Lanka was that the politics of division brought chaos and trouble into a country which had way more overlap and interconnection between all its different groups than was ever really admitted to. And I, and I, I could see that politics of division rearing its ugly head across the modern world. And sadly, uh, it's only grown in stature. There's only more and more countries using it. And it was very clear to us that there's a universal story there about what keeps us apart and what connects us that a broad audience would wrap onto as well. And so... I knew then that there was, that this was a different kind of work. This was a work which with every line, you know, I'm getting into craft now, but literally every line in that play has to speak to multiple audiences at once. And it was clear to me from kind of like the second draft onwards, that was the task. And that there is a message in there um, in terms of my reckoning with my family. There's a message in there in terms of our community's ability to heal in the wake of a multi-decade civil war. And there's a message in there about wider society and what we're willing to face around whether we choose to connect or disconnect from each other. Speaking of family, your mother, the renowned Indian classical dancer Anandavali, I mean, your mum is so amazing and inspiring and, frankly, for me, very formidable and a little bit scary. I yeah, you're not the only one who feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to tell you, I love my mum to bits, but whenever we try and cook in the kitchen together, someone has to take the knives off us. We can't collaborate <laughs> at all in the kitchen. And that's just cooking lunch. What was it like collaborating on both Counting and Cracking and now The Jungle in the Sea with your mum? I say this with love. <laughs> it's, not by, you know, it's not by choice, and I don't think it is with either of us. We, I'm an only child of divorced parents. I've spent a lot of time with my mum. You know, I, I've, she and, Aunt, she and I know each other pretty well and um, we don't need to spend more time with each other. <laughs> um, but you're living with each other right now, aren't you? 
We are. We are on separate floors. My wife and I and our family live upstairs. She lives downstairs. No, so that's all the, that's all the forward, right? That's all the forward. Um, so that's the context. And, and, and that's why I think the working relationship is a beautiful thing because, um, it's what needs to happen. It's not because we want to work with each other or because we have this amazing desire to spend more time with each other. It's because, you know, writing and theater has done this magical thing, which is, allowed a way for us to connect to each other that talking at the dinner table or trying to cook a meal together never could. You know, she needed that safe space to read the first draft of the play. I needed my time away from her to talk to my wider community. And it's only through the magic of storytelling that we have taken quantum leaps in our ability to relate to each other and work together. And it has been that way in lots of other ways, not just between mother and son and just me and my mother, but other members of my community and between other parts of our community that wouldn't normally talk to each other as well. So I think it's testament to um, what storytelling can do. Now, look, I guess it's a bit of a uh, a cliche, right, that uh, Indian subcontinental Asian mums, you know, you tell your mother you want to be an actor and she says it's pronounced doctor. <laughs> Your mum was is an amazingly creative woman. Was did she encourage you to go into this uncertain world of you know community arts and theatre and dance? Oh, I think the honest answer is hell no. <laughs> um, she was so 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 against it. As a child and as an adolescent, probably as a young man too. I thought it was because she was an overprotective mother who uh, wasn't too concerned with what I thought about anything. Some of that may still be true. <laughs> but um, as I've gotten older, I've realized two things. One, that is incredibly difficult to sustain a career as an artist. And I'm the father of two children. In, and I'm very lucky to have two young children in my life now. And I understand how your love for your children can translate into not wanting to give them a life of uncertainty. And she knows it better than anyone else because she's actually lived through it. It's not just hearsay for her. And she is living through it. It doesn't stop. So there's that. The second thing, which has really only came to me through counting and cracking, is that, you know, the act of migration is a hell of a thing. And it's it's heartbreaking to leave your country. And you don't want to. And you do it because you feel you have no other option. And she loves Sri Lanka. She still does. And she misses it every day. And, you know, I think part of the deal of coming to Australia was to give me opportunities that she was worried about me getting over there. You know, the kind of person I am now, you know, I, I wonder what my activist life would have been like in Sri Lanka if I'd even be alive now, you know. So I get why parents from countries like that want their children to do the safest thing possible. The Australian dream is a, it's an easy solution to fulfill why you left a homeland. But we know in our generation that it doesn't work and that we have to make meaning of the acts of our parents and our ancestors in order to properly grapple with our present. And so she's, she's dealt with that. Obviously, I didn't listen to anything she told me. She's an artist. She's a fabulous dancer. She's built an institution in her company, Lingalium. And Instead of listening to her words, I watched the respect she's treated the stage with. That moment before the lights go down in a show, anything can happen after that moment. 
And, you know, the stage is a sacred space. The stage is a place where many truths can gather. The, 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 the possibilities of writing a story and the infinite space you have when you, once you start that, those are actually the things I saw her put into action. And I chose to um, act on that instead of her trying to dissuade me with her words. It's almost as if her wonderful dancing, her incredible stage presence inspired you to become an artist. And But you've covered so many different kinds of art, you know, dance, theatre, documentary, film. It's almost like you can do anything. When you think about or when you have a project bubbling up or a story to tell, how do you decide on what form it takes? Yeah, it really comes back to that community arts practice. You know, we're, we're migrants in Australia, you and I, and millions of other people out there. And we, you know, so I don't walk into any situation in the industry where I have a history of power. And there's an element to every show having to make a miracle out of what you do. And, you know, you kind of got to put the boxing gloves on and get ready for the fight, you know? To, to make something that shouldn't happen, happen. Like I've never done a project where people were like, yeah, th- this should just, just happen. I've al- everyone's always been like, well, that's very different and it sounds ambitious and we haven't done anything like that before. I'm not sure about it. <laughs> like that's, you know, I don't even care anymore. That's just what happens automatically now. I know it. And so I'm concerned. I say all that to say what I'm concerned about is how storytelling creates power for a community. I'm concerned with the ability of what we do, our craft, to package up the many truths of a group of people and share it back in a way that allows that group to heal or that group to have more power or for a wider audience to understand it in a way they're never going to get from the news or a history book. That's what I care about in every project I do. That's first and foremost. The secondary thing is the form it takes. And the form it takes should come from that what that kind of power will best be served by, what the potential relationship between that story and that community, like what form is best going to serve what that community wants and what that power could be. And, that, and that's how I decide. Shakti, counting and cracking in your most recent screen project, which was this sounds like this amazing multi-platform VR, audio-visual, multimedia screen project, Laka, You've said that they're part of your Kurinji body of work, a universe of interconnected stories stretching from before colonisation through to an imagined 22nd century. What does Kurinji mean, the word itself, and how do these works become part of that body of work as opposed to all the other things that you've done which kind of seem to address the same sorts of themes? The reason it's called that is because it's it's a raga, first of all, but that's not why it's called that, but it's a really beautiful um, secondary aspect to it. But um, Kurinji is a flower that grows in a mountainous region in India, but it only blooms once every 12 years. And I really love it as a symbol of patience and persistence. Working with communities across Australia, both through my the privilege I got to do that through Curious Works and through my own independent artistic practice, I've come to realize that there is a, a version of Australia's history which doesn't get talked about enough, which I find incredibly assuring. <laughs> it's something I touched on earlier in the interview, which is that we have an ancient multiculturalism, that people have been coming to Australia for thousands of years from Asia, that there is a solid... I feel so at home when I sit in, you know, Yurkala, where much of Laka is set, 
I feel so at home when I sit on a mat with aunties in Yurikula. I feel it feels so similar to sitting with a group of women in a kitchen in Jaffna in North Sri Lanka. I feel like the north of Australia in particular feels so much like the south of Asia. And there's a moment in Candy and Cracking where the character Siddhartha says, um, learns from this uh, a woman he falls in love with eventually, Lily, that there's a DNA match between South Asians and North Indigenous, North Indigenous North Australians from 4,000 years ago. And it's based on a conversation I had with a dear friend of mine, Rosalie Pearson, in the courthouse in Newtown, where I told her I'd read that article. And she looked at me and said, yeah, that was my family that they tested. And I just kind of went, wow, like I'm having a beer with you in Newtown and our ancestors might have had whatever the equivalent of that is on the shores of Arnhem Land 4,000 years ago. And that too is an unbroken history. And I don't see why we can't recast Australia's history in that light. And I had a light bulb moment four or five years ago where I realized that all my projects that I'm the kind of driving force on are actually an assemblage of that alternative history of Australia. And so the Kurunji website and the, the that body of work is actually, there's a timeline on it. And over time, it will uh, be an interactive version through all these different works um, of what Australia's history could be said to be, particularly in its relationship to Asia. It's obviously something that takes time to build. And so it's starting now and, you know, we'll, we'll grow like a little Kurunji flowers over 12 plus years. I mean, it is amazing, isn't it, when you think about, say, that connection between, you know, that Gondwana connection between Australia and South Asia. And I think of that wonderful poem. Now, my Tamil accent's terrible. Um, Kurun, Kuruntukai, uh, Red Earth and Pouring Rain. Yeah, yeah, of course. Exactly. They're just insanely beautiful, those, those poems. And, of course, it makes me think of you and your friend, Rosalie, in the courthouse, you know, talking yeah, it does. in the same way. I fully agree with you. Yep. Yeah, and they, you know, those poems are like, oh, look, we could talk about this for ages, but those poems are, it just shows to you the connections we have because those poems, ancient Indian poems, for those who don't who don't know, are use landscape to to show our interior emotions, and they are absolutely some of the most sophisticated ways of thinking about our relationship to nature, art, our emotions in an integrated manner. And they're at the cornerstone of both our cultures. And like, who are the other like pioneers of this? You know, it's indigenous Australians, like they've been doing it longer than anyone. And so those kinds of solidarities, those kinds of deeply non-colonial ways of relating to the world are stronger and more connected than we realize, you know, they're there waiting for us to kind of nourish a bit more. Now, going back to the show that we will probably be at tonight, BC mm. before Corona, the Sad. jungle and the sea. <laughs> it, it, it's it's billed as a as after Antigone and the Mahabharata. How did how did they come together, the Mahabharata and the Greek, you know, Sophocles verse poem uh, play Antigone? Uh, I grew up reading the Mahabharata. It was my first introduction to story, as I'm sure it is with lots of South Asian kids. I read was it, it Amachitrakatas? Yeah, I was about to say that, man. I read it first as Amachitrakatas, and then I read it as, you know, the many, many different translations that exist of it in English. So so just for just for people listening, Amachitrakatas are basically these amazing Indian comic books that every Indian child, especially children of Indian or Sri Lankan immigrants, will read to learn about their culture. And um, so I grew up with that book, that set of books, 
that that epic. I'm pretty obsessed with it. Not in the way that academics are obsessed with it, who I deeply respect their obsession for it, but I just it's just a rollicking rollicking story that's really complex. It's got a lot of problems, <laughs> and I love its problems. And Eamon's pretty obsessed with Antigone. Eamon Flack, Artiste de Belvoir. And we were chatting about this and we both uh, shared with each other elements of those stories. And we discussed the way they deal with tragedy and they use storytelling to find a way to cope with the tragic. And I was really keen after Kanye and Cracking to honour the stories of people who'd survived the civil war. Kanye and Cracking was very much about how society builds up to a war. And this for me, the next step was the stories of people who survived it and how they hold their dignity and keep their dignity amidst a war. And then through this conversation about Antigone and Mahabharata, the door just opened, you know, there was a form there to, to kind of use a chorus and to have larger than life figures that are almost mythological. There was a form there that allowed me to understand and crack the, um, the scale of dealing with people who've lived through war. And there is a moment that happens at the end of a war which, in which a country must grapple with its history and go, are we going to honour every side of this war? Are we going to state what happened in it, the ugliness of what happened in it, so that we can all find a way to be in peace after it? Or are the victors going to put forward their version of what happened and, and silence the rest? And um, this is a big part of Antigone. It, it, it's a big part of Mahabharata and it's a big part of Sri Lanka's contemporary situation. And I think it has so much resonance with what's happening now in the Black Lives Matter movement, which is about so many things, but part of it in terms of especially how it relates to us as artists, I think has to do with how we grapple with our history, you know, and how we as a society can be mature enough to honestly talk about what has happened in our country's and and find a way to to share in that honesty. So yeah, that's that's how Jungle on the Sea came to be by um, those old epics kind of allowing us the space to look at it on that that big mythological epic level. I mean, I'm so devastated that uh, it was at first postponed and has now sadly been cancelled. Will it come back? Will Belvoir run another thing? Well, no, it should be. Oh, yeah. It'll be on at some point. <laughs> it is. Um, it's a big, expensive show that has international cast, and so we just um, coming back to your very, very first question. We cannot have any idea of planning for it because we don't know when people can travel again into this country. Yeah, we have to wait. Like like many people around the world, we have to wait. <laughs> so, what's up next for you, Shakti? You know, amidst all this uncertainty, no more mass gatherings. How are you expressing yourself or telling stories while you wait for the world to reopen? I'm very lucky that I write. I really feel for the the crew, the designers, the key creatives, the actors, um, the performers. Like it's just they're in a really tough situation now, and I and I, I worry. I deeply worry about what will happen to elements of our arts ecology if this lockdown continues. And of course it, it needs to be what it is, but I worry about that, but I'm lucky. I write, I can keep writing from home. And you know, so what I've done is the, um, the things I thought I would write over like the next 
three years. I'm probably going to write the first drafts and all of that this year. <laughs> well, I already am. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of squashing or writing happening. It's kind of weird not knowing when any of it's going to hit the stage or the screen. But I think the part of the way I'm dealing with that is I feel like I've looked a lot at migration and identity, past and future in my most recent works. And what I'm starting to look at a lot now is our relationship to the land. And I don't mean that in a theoretical way. I mean that in the sense of like uh, we are part nature and whether we like it or not, um, it's a component. Like we are one of many species on this planet. I think we have to grapple with that. We have to find a space that's neither romanticizing that nor denying it. So a lot of the works I'm doing now still have that, what outsiders might see as a Sri Lankan lens or, a, you know, there's diversity in it, which is, you know, hilarious because it's most of the world. But there's a new kind of way I'm looking at it, which is to do with our relationship to the land. And, and I think also our relationship with our immediate communities, you know, what is the community that you're a part of? I'm talking like literally the streets you live on. And what are the responsibilities you have within that matrix of being part of it for a long time? You know, that's your family, it's your suburb, it's your work, and that ecology being balanced with each other in your place. And so the stories I'm writing all kind of grapple with that as well. Thanks so much, Shakti, for such an enlightening and entertaining conversation. You're welcome. Thanks for having the chat. Before we go, I just wanted to share this beautiful poem, Kuruntukai, Red Earth and Pouring Rain, by the Tamil Sangam poet, now my pronunciation is terrible, mum will tell you that, by the Tamil Sangam poet, Chempula Payanira. What he said. What could my mother be to yours? What kin is my father to yours anyway? And how did you and I meet ever? But in love... Our hearts have mingled as red earth and pouring rain. You can find out more about Shakti and his amazing Kurinji body of work at kurinji.com.au. I'm Sunil Badami and it's been a pleasure spending this time with you for this conversation from Byron. Don't forget to check out all the other wonderful online events at byronwritersfestival.com and sign up for news, events and regular postcards from Byron featuring stories, recipes and more from some of our best writers. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.